Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, a podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And today we're going to be talking to you about Mexican nun, poet, polymath, and proto-feminist Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Boonwurrung and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We recognize them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. Secondly, as you might have noticed today, it's just me and Alice recording. We're doing a test run of recording online from our different houses because the pandemic continues to happen and this is a safer and more legal way for us to bring you a podcast. To be clear, we have always been bringing you a podcast in a safe and legal way. It just means yes, sometimes yes. you don't get to see Irene. <laughs> Your exile is um, over. I'd like to do a few content warnings before we start this episode. Um, it will contain mentions of slavery, misogyny, a brief discussion of an epidemic, and homophobia in the scholarship. This episode also contains a poem which has sexual reference and swearing in it. It's only a single poem, so you should be able to skip that section. I'll add timestamps in the description. The other thing I'd like to make a note of is, in spite of it being situated in 17th century Mexico, what we don't really discuss are the indigenous peoples of Mexico. This is not because they're not there. There are indigenous people in Mexico. I just wanted to be clear. It's not that I've overlooked them. It's that Sor Juana's ethnic background is Spanish. Her cultural ties are very much to Spanishness. And if she interacted much with Indigenous people, it doesn't come up a lot in the text. I just didn't sort of want it to read like an episode where there are just Spanish people in Mexico and that's it. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. In terms of the structure of this episode, we're relatively short on biographical <laughs> details about Sor Juana's life, especially queer biographical details. So for that reason, the way I've chosen to do this is essentially to go through her biography first, and then at the end I'm going to read you a couple of her queerest poems in translation, and we can chat about them. <laughs> Love that for us. <laughs> I love that too. I love to read queer poetry. <laughs> I often love it when we have no biographical details and even less queer details. <laughs> I do love queer poetry for us, unironically. <laughs> Literally the first thing that happens, the first book I opened when researching this, like the first page on her biography was like literally everything about Sor Juana's life is somewhat under debate. Most but all scholars now accept 1648 as her birth date. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you were in the uh, Hadrian Antinous episode, but in that one we were like, we don't know what year Antinous was born, but we do know his birthday. <laughs> yeah, this is this is the same. This is the same. We can approximately tell you, like, we know the month and the probable date she was born. But we um, don't know when. But we can't guarantee the year. Okay, let's start then. When was she born? <laughs> <laughs> there are a couple of other things I want to say first before okay. I... I'm sorry, there's a bunch of, like, preamble material here. That's the Queer as Fact way. So, Sofwana is actually one of our most requested episodes. Yeah, that's true. Which surprised me, because I had literally not heard of her until we stuck her on the list because somebody asked us about her. Yeah, same. Um, as it turns out, she's very well known in Mexico and across Spanish-speaking America, but just, like, much less attention is paid to her in the Anglosphere. Hmm. This means, as a non-Spanish-speaking researcher, my avenues were obviously somewhat limited. Yeah. Um, 
There's a bunch of great academic work on Sorfuana in Spanish, which has not been translated. And a lot of the sources closer to her lifetime similarly haven't been translated, which meant that I had to trust like quotes from scholars who had translated them, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I guess consider this more like an intro to Sorfuana for English speakers than the depth of content you would get if this was a Spanish language podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On that note, the most significant and accessible biography of Juana available in English is Octavio Paz's The Traps of Faith, translated by Margaret Sayers Pedden. Octavio is kind of feral. <laughs> did you say feral? <laughs> I did. <laughs> no offense to him, he genuinely put a lot of work into this and all of the actual, like, factual and biographical information within it is very well cited okay. and plausible. So I think that aspect of it is very good, but it's like a 500-page biography, and I feel like a good two-thirds of it is just like him speculating, kind of freud light. <laughs> oh, yeah, we know this style of biography. Yeah. Yep. Psychoanalysis um, with absolutely no, like, psychological or historical background. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I've used it as a source quite a lot because it has a lot of the concrete information that we have in it. Mm -hmm. But if you want to go there to find out more, just approach it with caution. <laughs> he does spend a lot of time speculating about like what people thought and how people were motivated in ways that are just unfounded. Yeah, yeah. It is kind of, you know, sometimes it's obviously out of line, but it's a bit difficult to draw a line when you have like a very sparse biography or not that much information between like, yeah, we kind of have to speculate and try and fill in the gaps and you're just making stuff up. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of times, like I essentially draw that line when it does start getting into like spurious psychoanalysis. Yeah. Which it so often does. Which is so often the case. Especially with queer stuff. Yeah. And again, in Octavio's defense, he does put a lot of effort into like trying to convince the reader that there was nothing weird or abnormal about Sor Juana as a woman who was devoted to study. Okay, well, that's good. Unfortunately, he just counts same-sex attraction under that abnormal banner. <laughs> There's nothing gay about being into your studies. Is that the vibe? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, basically. Okay. Well, it was a common it was a common thing in earlier scholarship to kind of interpret Sohuana as somebody who had some kind of like pathological masculine Oh yeah. trait. That made her both a lesbian and a scholar. Yeah, basically. Yeah. I see how yeah. that is. Just before we do anything else, when we're calling her Sohuana, is just Saw just like sister because she's a nun? Yes. Okay, yes, cool, cool, cool. Just because she's a nun. And I did try in my notes not to call her Sor Juana before she <laughs> joined the convent, but it's, yeah. Okay, you know. cool. we might slip up. <laughs> you know, it's like that time when we tried not to call Tchaikovsky Tchaikovsky. Pete. <laughs> yeah, all right, Pete. <laughs> Let's start. What do we know about Sor Juana? That's what I'm here to find out. So, she was born in the town of San Miguel Nepantla a small village to the southeast of Mexico City. I'm not going to make you play Mexican geography. Thanks. I don't even know where Mexico City is within Mexico. <laughs> I know you will lose already. Um, if you look on, at her hometown on Google Maps now, incidentally, it's marked as Nepantla de Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. Oh, cool. So she's the most famous person from her town. Yeah, absolutely. Good, good, good. Diego Calajas, her first biographer, 
who was writing just after her death, lists her birth date as November 12, 1651. However, the local parish's baptism register lists an Inez, daughter of Isabel Ramirez, which was Sor Juana's mother, and lists Sor Juana's godparents, baptised in December of 1648. Okay, so I feel like this could go one of two ways. Either her biographer just stuffed up and that baptismal record is her, or they were doing the thing that a lot of families did where they had babies and those babies died very young and they just reused the name. Yeah, that's possible. That's possible. Yeah. And, like, reused the godparents too, I guess. Like, there's no harm in giving two of your kids the same godparents. Yeah, so... We can kind of guess she was maybe born in 1651, maybe in 1648. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It doesn't wind up making a huge difference to her life story either way. Yep. Cool. She was born to a Spanish father, Pedro Manuel de Espahi, Mm -hmm. and a Criolla mother, Isabel Ramirez. In this context, Criolla means somebody of Spanish descent born in the New World. It doesn't imply that she's mixed race. Okay. Her parents are both from a Spanish background, but her mom's family's been in Mexico for longer. Yeah, basically. Her mum was born here. Her dad was born in Spain. They're both in Mexico. Mm -hmm. They're both Spanish, essentially. Her parents were unmarried. Oh. The parish register lists her as a daughter of the church, which is usually how they would list a child of unmarried parents. Okay. We know who her father was because, one, Juana mentions him a couple of times, and secondly, her mother mentioned the name of her oldest three children's father in her will. Okay, so they weren't married, but they were like a couple that had multiple children together. Yeah, they had three children together. And so Juana was the youngest of the three. Mm -hmm. When she was quite young... Her father abandoned the family. We don't really know when that happened. Octavio Paz speculates that she must have been around five or six years old. Does he give a reason for that speculation? Essentially, it just makes sense with things we know about what happened later in her life because Isabel returned with her three kids to her parents' home at that time. Ah, yeah. And we sort of know things about when Juana was in her grandparents' home. Okay, that makes sense. This doesn't seem to have been the biggest deal. New Spain, as it was called, the like Spanish colony in America, New Spain was known for having much more lax sexual norms compared mm. to original Spain, <laughs> OG Spain. <laughs> and Juana and her siblings were not the only illegitimate children in the family. Uh-huh. Isabel's parents were relatively well off. They owned a hacienda, which is a, like a large estate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's essentially, it's a big farm, a ranch, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you want to call that in your language. And her grandfather had an extensive library. And in that way, her young childhood was relatively comfortable and relatively connected to like educated culture. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a pretty nice life. So the details we know about Juana's life around this time come from Sor Juana herself, a text she wrote much later in life, essentially defending her right as a woman to study. And so the rhetoric of that text depended a lot on her convincing the reader that her aptitude for study was like a God-given gift from birth. Mm -hmm. So this sort of bias is what she says. So she has to make herself sound like a really smart, studious child from the the get-go. Yeah, basically. I'm going to tell you the things she said anyway, because one, we don't really know anything else about her childhood. Mm -hmm. And two, they're honestly quite cute. And it's always fun to have quotes directly from the person. Firstly, she says, when she was less than three, she secretly followed her older sister to school and told the teacher that she had been sent by her mother to learn to read and write. (laughs) 
<laughs> that seems realistic. It seems realistic. A two-year-old. The teacher, says Juana, did not believe it because it was not believable that a mother would send her two-year-old daughter to school. <laughs> but what did her sister say? Was her sister like, yeah, I'll back you up? Was her sister like, no, go home? <laughs> the implication is that she, like, followed her secretly. Yeah, but, like, once she's talking to the teacher, obviously they know she's there. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. She doesn't say. She's just like, I followed my sister to school through mischief and affection. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Look, maybe um, the story happened when she wasn't like two, but it still does sound like a relatively believable story. Yeah, yeah. And she goes to the teacher, and she's like, "Yeah, my mother sent me to learn to read and write." Um, so the teacher did not believe it, but she thought it was harmless to have Sor Juana join the class, and so she gave her a lesson. Oh yeah, well, that's good. I learned to read in so short a time, says Juana, that I already knew how by the time my mother found out where I was. <laughs> I learned to read in one afternoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, she immediately became devoted to her studies. So she claims that around the same age, maybe a few years older, she heard that eating cheese could make you stupid. So she gave up eating cheese. What am I going to do? (laughs) Noted here, which is like, look, all of us at Queerest Back are absolute idiots. (laughs) I had cheese for lunch. Yeah, I haven't eaten cheese at all today, actually. Lucky I'm hosting. Well, that's all right then. We're fine. <laughs> anyway, if you're lactose intolerant or vegan, message us and we will just like give the podcast to you. Yeah. <laughs> By the time she was six, she heard of the university in Mexico City and begged her mother to send her dressed as a boy to live with relatives in the city so she could go to university. <laughs> so I know that back in the olden days, this is not a thing a historian should say, but back in the olden days, like we generally start uni at 18. Like you do school until you're 18, then you go to yeah. uni. But in the past, it's been more flexible and people have sometimes started uni younger. I'm yeah. assuming that's the situation here, given that she's six. She's not just like, pass me off as an 18-year-old boy, a really short one. <laughs> I mean, this is, like, absolutely, completely impossible. Like, <laughs> I mean, she no is six-year-old six. goes to the university. She's like, why can't I go to the university? Can't I dress as a boy and go to the university? And her mother is like, no. Once again, I do believe that she asked for this. Like, if you're a six-year-old yeah. kid who loves reading and you learn about what university is, I can see why you'd be like, oh, my God, why can't I go there? Why can't I go right now? And somebody's like, well, yeah. girls can't go to you. And you're like, fine, I'll dress as a boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She finishes this anecdote by saying that her mother refused, and rightly so. Yeah, rightly so. Maybe <laughs> wait ten years, Juana. Unable to go to the university, she contented herself reading through her grandfather's entire library. Good, good. In January of 1656, we think. So she's about gran- like eight, six to eight. Yeah, six to eight. Yeah. Yeah. Her grandfather Pedro Ramirez died. Mm-hmm. Around the same time, Isabel found a new partner with whom she would have three more children. So at this age, Juana was sent to live in Mexico City with her mother's sister Mm -hmm. and her mother's sister's husband. Again, I can tell you very little about what happened in her teenage years. Okay. I have the following quote from Diego Calajas, who wrote her first biography. Rumors flew of an ability never yet seen in one of so few years, and keeping pace with her years, so grew her cleverness, thanks to her care for her studies, and likewise her comely appearance, thanks to the care of nature alone. (laughs) Okay. She's smart, she's hot, she's having a good life. That's, That's all we know. As a teenager, she was smart and hot. Okay. Some good historiography right here. But only thing we know from Juana herself about this time in her life is that she had about 20 classes in Latin. 
As in she went to 20 Latin lessons and then... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She went to 20 Latin lessons, which she loved, and she became determined to learn Latin. So she motivated herself to study Latin by measuring the length of her hair, cutting off about six inches and setting herself goals to achieve by the time it grew back. (laughs) I've never heard of that uh, study method before. I think we should take a photo and post that and tag it like, you know, study blur or whatever they call it these days. (laughs) (laughs) And then if she failed, she would cut it off and try again. She says, it did not seem right for my head to be dressed in hair if it was bare of knowledge. (laughs) That's pretty crazy. I like it. I was really worried when you said she went to 20 Latin lessons that you were going to be like, and then she was fluent in Latin. And I was just mentally thinking about the number of Latin lessons I've been to in my life. (laughs) (laughs) No, she went to 20 Latin classes with like, I love Latin. I'm going to learn Latin. And then she studied Latin at home. I've been wondering what to do with my hair during lockdown, because obviously I can't go to a hairdresser, so maybe I'll start using it as a study motivation tool. As a study motivation tool, yeah. In 1664, when we think Suhana was 15, I don't know, Mm -hmm. um, it's plausible that she was 15. This seems like a reasonable age for her to be at, like, for these events. Okay. Um... A new viceroy and his wife arrived in Mexico. So just like a quick rundown on the government situation <laughs> at this time. Thank you. I was worried you were just going to be like, a new viceroy arrived. And I would have no idea what that meant. And I would just have to bluff my way through this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to give you a quick rundown. So basically there's Spain and then there's New Spain, which covers Mexico, a bunch of what's now the United States, some mm-hmm. of the top of South America and the Philippines. <laughs> Like, I understand that the Spanish did also colonize the Philippines, but it seems weird to just call that all New Spain. Like, the Philippines (laughs) is not geographically a part of that. They called the entire thing New Spain, and in a technical sense, it's not a colony, in that it doesn't, like, belong to Spain. It belongs to the monarch, in the same way that Australia now is not a colony. Oh, I see. So it's, like, a separate country that is also ruled by, like, King Philip or whatever his name is. Yeah, it's essentially, it's like another province of Spain rather than, like, a subjugated... Okay, different thing under Spain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, technically. I yeah. just want to flag that I said King Philip, but I made that up. Don't take that as historical fact. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't think I'm ever going to tell you the name of the Spanish monarch. Should we check just so we, you know, tell historical truths on this podcast? Yeah, I guess so. Let's find out. King of Spain, 1650. Philip. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I won't cut off that inch of hair. Anyway, so basically they have a viceroy who is appointed by the king back in Spain and gets shipped out to rule New Spain. So to put that in an Australian context for our like 5% of listeners who are in Australia, that's like a governor. He's like the governor general. Yeah, yeah. Typically their they're like official term is three years, mm-hmm. but periodically they're involved in like secret agreements where the Spanish government will be like, look, we'll put you in for six years. Just don't tell anyone yet. (laughs) Okay. Yep. Standard government corruption stuff. In 1664, when Sor Juana was 15, a new viceroy and his wife arrived in Mexico. He, we don't really care about at all. Okay. Um, she, her name was Leonor Carreto. And the family that Juana was staying with presented her to Leonor as a lady-in-waiting, and she joined the court. Oh, okay. Do we know how Juana felt about that? Not really. Not really. Octavio spent a long time speculating about whether or not she felt abandoned by her family. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's a prestigious oh. position, but it doesn't seem to align with her interests in studies, is why I was wondering. Yeah. She still does, like, she still does get to study. Oh, okay. Home. That's good, then. Leonor was around 15 years older than Juana mm-hmm. and came from a very literary family background. So she had a lot of interest in literature and in learning in general. So she and Juana immediately became quite close. Nice. In a gay sort of, way? Potentially. Potentially. <laughs> okay. I'll let you get to that in good time. <laughs> she sort of sets herself up as like a mentor figure and a supporter for Juana. Oh, yeah. Um, while Juana was at court, she quickly developed a reputation for essentially being a teen prodigy. I mean, she has sounded like a teen prodigy throughout, so that adds up. I'm going to read you a quote in translation from Diego Calajas about her time at court. Mm-hmm. The Honourable Marquis de Mancera, who was the viceroy, who is living today, and may he live many more years. <laughs> he is not living today. This was in like <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. Has twice told me that he was uncommonly astonished on seeing such diversity of knowledge in Juana Inez. He wanted to ascertain the truth and to learn whether such amazing wisdom was innate or acquired. So he gathered together one day in his palace all the men of letters in the university and the city of Mexico. They numbered some 40 of various professions. Theologians, scripturists, philosophers, mathematicians, historians, poets, humanists, and not a few of those we like facetiously to call parlor wits. <laughs> it's like the equivalent of those people today who are just like famous for being famous. And you're like, but what do they actually like do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So on the appointed day, they gathered for this curious and remarkable competition. And the Honorable Marquis testifies that the human mind cannot conceive what he witnessed. For he says that in the manner that a royal galleon, here I transcribe his excellency's words, might fend off the attacks of a few canoes, so did Juana extricate herself from the questions, arguments, and objections these many men, each in his specialty, directed her. Good on, Juana. I don't have much of a sense, like, obviously we know about her interests, but I don't have much of a sense of Juana's personality yet. But I hope that she was the sort of person who, like, really enjoyed just, like, putting all these men in their place rather than finding that a very intimidating and horrible experience, which could have been. I get the impression that she would have enjoyed it. That's Um, good. Like, throughout her life, she's always someone who's, like, hosting salons and having, like, friendly debates with people. Okay, so she, like, enjoys arguing and debating. Yeah. Good, good, good. Yeah, and she's quite, like, she's understandably very proud of her learning because yeah. she's pretty much entirely self-taught other than those 20 Latin lessons she had. <laughs> and so I think it's fair to say that she probably, whether or not she enjoyed this experience, I feel that she was at least like proud of the outcome. Okay. Okay. Well, that's good. I wonder what kind of stuff they asked her. Her interests are just like incredibly broad. Like later in life, she has a like a library of 4,000 books or something, along with a bunch of scientific equipment. Um, mm-hmm. She is also into painting. I found one academic article that was like, look, we've all been thinking about Sor Juana as a writer, but we really missed out on her true genius, which is miniature paintings. Oh, miniature paintings. Yeah, she painted a bunch of like miniature portraits and that kind of thing. Cool. She's really like a Renaissance woman. Like I feel like people had a much broader variety of uh, – people didn't specialise as much 400 years yeah. ago as they do today. When Juana was probably 19 years old, maybe Mm -hmm. 16 years old, um, (laughs) I've generally trusted the slightly earlier birth date because it just kind of felt right with me 
like what she was doing at that age. Oh yeah. And like, you know, even though I said that like maybe families, you know, would use the same name again, the fact that we have a baptismal record, like that's primary evidence. That's pretty like more solid than a biography some guy wrote. So when Juana was 19 years old in 1666, she joined a convent. Huh. Um, She joined the Discalced Carmelites. What's Discalced mean? I looked this up. It means that they don't wear shoes. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a reference to like vows of poverty and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, That makes sense. I'll give you some quick facts about the DCs. (laughs) Is that Um, what they were known as the time or what you've decided to call them? That's what I've chosen to call them in my notes after I got sick of typing out discalced and imagining that they couldn't add up. That's fair, that's fair. Okay, we'll call them DCs then. Yeah. So they were founded by Teresa of Avila in 1562 in response to what she felt was like the increasing laxity of the original Carmelites who were meant to be committed to lives of like asceticism and prayer. Oh, okay, okay. So this is like a spin-off Carmelites. It's a, like spin-off Carmelites and they're like more serious business than the originals. Okay. Or they see themselves as more serious business than the originals, let's say. I don't know enough about Carmelites to just cast that kind of shade. <laughs> yeah. Teresa perceived the original Carmelites as like you know, slacking off and living lives of luxury when they should be devoted to prayer. This kind of made sense as a choice for Juana. Teresa herself was highly literate and was considered to be like a theologian. And she was quite committed to education beyond what the church generally considered acceptable for women at the time. Yeah. So in that way, particularly, Juana's goals and the discalced Carmelites were kind of in line. After three months, however, she returned to court. Oh, okay. We don't really know why she left. Some sources put it down to ill health, saying that her health was unsuited to the harshness of the discalced Carmelites' lives. That makes sense. Octavio Paz says there's not a single text or document to support this, and then goes on to create his own theory about why she left, which also has not a single text or document to support. Love that scholarship. Um, But he's extremely convinced, and he basically says that Sor Juana was unable to cope with the severe lifestyle and, like, was frightened and left, basically. So it's basically the same claim that she couldn't cope with the lifestyle, except he's made it from, like, you know, a personality or psychological standpoint rather than a physical standpoint yeah basically okay (laughs) but we don't actually know we actually have no idea maybe she was ill maybe she just wasn't having fun maybe she didn't have as much time to study as she hoped she would have yeah i don't know yeah so she returned to court for another year and a half and then she tried at becoming a nun again this time at a heronomite convent Nice. So, of the Order of St. Jerome, I was shocked to learn that Hieronymite and Jerome are in fact the same. I think I knew that, like, somewhere deep in the recesses of my mind. <laughs> yeah. So what characterises a Hieronymite? What characterises the Hieronymites, I'm not particularly sure. What characterises this specific convent is that they were quite relaxed in terms of, like, religious obligations compared to the DCs, for example. Mm-hmm. While their, like, daily lives were quite structured around prayer, you know, you still get up in the morning and do your morning prayer and then eat breakfast and then do... Yeah. You still do all the... But everything, the rest of their time was much freer. So this time, it stuck. She stayed with the convent and she would remain there for the rest of her life. Oh, that makes her biography easy. Like, obviously, you know, nuns in convents can do a lot of stuff, but if you know exactly where she is for the rest of her life, <laughs> it becomes like more straightforward. Her, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, no, that's that's right. So there are a bunch of reasons why she might have joined a convent. A common through line in like earlier biographers was to put it down to a failed love affair at court. <laughs> is there evidence the for that? Of- in, in the words of our pal Octavio, there is not a single text or document to support this. That's the lot I suspected. Like, I feel like um, that's not that different to the, like, oh, you're just a lesbian because you've had bad experiences with men line. Yeah. Like, it's exactly the same argument. The only reason you could not want to just, like, settle down in a heteronormative life with a man is because, like, some guy turned you down. Yeah. 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 So that's... Maybe it happened. I can't tell you it did, but like. <laughs> but you can't tell us it did. <laughs> I can't tell you it did, and it doesn't. Yeah, people just thought that would like make sense as a narrative. Yep. yep. Octavio, <laughs> in his fondness for speculation, actually posits some much more sort of practical and plausible reasons for her decision. Mm-hmm. For one thing, her lack of a father made it very difficult for her to secure a good marriage. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Which meant that the convent would essentially guarantee her financial security for life. Mm -hmm. I also think it's worth remembering that joining a convent in 1669 is much less extreme in action than it sounds like to us today. Yeah, I was thinking that when you said that, like, the Hieronymites were much more kind of relaxed about what you could do with your time. Like, I think because there are, and obviously depending on where you are in the world, this is different, but, like, in Australia there are very few convents and they're mostly occupied by, like, older women who are there because of their religious beliefs rather than there being a bunch of convents where some people are there because they want to study or because they just have no one to support them or, you know, all kinds of other reasons that aren't as strictly religious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so Juana herself says of her decision to join the convent, she says in the same text where she gave us those cute stories about her childhood. (laughs) I liked those. Um, I entered the convent, although I knew the situation had certain characteristics incompatible with my character. But considering the total antipathy I had towards matrimony, the convent was the least disproportionate and most honourable decision I could make. That's fair. I'm wondering, I don't know if you can give us a concrete answer on this, because it's a pretty, like, vague question, but how strong was the pressure on a woman to marry in this, like, time and place? Like, were the options kind of like marriage or convent, or was being a single woman, like... A thing she could have done within the court like within the viceregal court mm-hmm. that pressure was quite strong yeah to like make a choice between marriage and the convent you can see though just like by the example of Sor Juana's mother mm-hmm. that marriage was not necessarily essential okay like yeah. it seems to have been though it seems to have been acceptable for her specifically to kind of live a de facto heck heteronormative life so Juana's mother like she's still living in a long-term relationship with a partner yeah and I guess when you say like it was acceptable we do see though that it's having negative impact on Sor Juana's kind Mm. of social standing like she can't necessarily marry as easily because her parents weren't married yeah yeah but yeah essentially and she sort of goes on to say in that which i don't have in my notes specifically here but she goes on to say basically that although she thought that the communal lifestyle of a convent might disrupt her studies Mm. it would provide her with essentially more opportunity to study than any other lifestyle she could think of yeah yeah and she says a little later i learned how difficult it is to study those soulless characters without the living voice and explanations of a teacher yet i glad endured all this work for the sake of my love of letters. Oh, if it had only been for the sake of my love of God, which is the correct love, how meritorious it would have been. (laughs) 
I like that she straight up owns up to like, I wasn't there because of God. <laughs> it was just a practical <laughs> yeah. decision for me. <laughs> yeah, basically, basically. Which is to say, like, to be clear, she was a Catholic, but she wasn't. But, you know, you can be a Catholic who loves God without wanting to dedicate your life to being in a convent. Yeah. Father Antonio Nunez de Miranda, her confessor, Mm -hmm. negotiated a wealthy benefactor to pay her dowry to allow her to join the convent. Oh, I never thought about having to pay a dowry to join a convent. Like, I know joining a convent is in some ways, like, ritually akin to marriage, but I never thought about that part. Yeah, it is. And there were, like, different different levels of convent depending on what you could afford. Like, there were convents for much poorer women. <laughs> I know that, like, this makes sense and obviously, like, that's how it would be. But I'm just picturing, like, a Patreon or something. Like, what level of convent will you unlock? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let's talk about the convent life at St. Jerome's. Okay. Um, technically, vows of poverty were taken. They were not enforced. <laughs> <laughs> the best kind of vow. The nuns often had maids, servants, or slaves. Oh, Um, that's okay. I just didn't see that coming. Yeah, so Juana's mother gifted her a slave on her entry to the convent. Okay. Who was also called Juana, incidentally. So are these slaves, like, slaves who have been uh, brought over from West Africa, or are they indigenous people, or, like, who are these people? Likely a mix. Okay, yep, yep. Likely a mix of, like, indigenous people, like, mixed-race people, slaves from Africa. Yeah. And we don't know about this other Juana specifically, I guess. I don't know a heap about her. I know that her name was Juana de San Jose. That's literally all I know about her. Okay. So, they, like I said, they technically took vows of poverty, which were not enforced at all. Mm-hmm. They slept in cells and lived in communal areas, in theory. In reality, the cells were more like apartments. Most of them had a bathroom, a kitchen, and a sitting room in addition to the bedroom. <laughs> That's um, nicer than, you know, obviously my house is very nice, but I don't have my own bathroom, kitchen, and living room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, many of them also had extensive balconies or patios. I do have that. For an example, in 1691, Sor Juana bought a cell, so the cells were like, could be bought or sold or just rented from the convent, basically like an apartment. <laughs> this isn't what Jesus wanted. No. So Suhana bought a cell in 1691, so a while later, and the sale records that it consisted of upper and lower floors. Let me just get out my dictionary and look up cell for a moment. (laughs) So just out of curiosity, who is it this Diego guy who's telling you these facts about the convent and how it didn't really align with its supposed goals? Um, no. So... The sale records that I'm telling you, those are like written sale records. Okay, so this is like a definitive historical fact. This isn't just like yeah. Diego doesn't like the Hieronymites. Yeah, no, no, no. This is, this is a fact. Okay. Like we know how the convent was laid out and that kind of thing. Okay, okay. We can – I don't know if it's still there, but – But we know what it was like. So the nuns were considered to be cloistered, so like removed from the outside world in mm-hmm. order to better help them contemplate God. Yeah. So they were not permitted to leave the convent. However, they could welcome outside visitors. Well, that's more than um, I can do. Into their cells and host salons and parties there on their <laughs> extensive balconies. Good, good, good. The convent also had a boarding school for girls attached. <laughs> it was well known for its classes in theatre, music and dance. Oh, okay. So it was like a performing arts focus. Yeah, I guess so. That's interesting. 
Juana did not teach at the convent school, but she often wrote songs or plays or verses Mm -hmm. for the girls to perform. The realities of communal living sometimes bothered her. She says, I might be reading and those in the adjoining cell would wish to play their instruments and sing. I might be studying and two servants who had quarreled would select me to judge their dispute. Or I might be writing and a friend would come to visit me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But overall, the convent life works quite well for her at this stage Mm -hmm. essentially other than her time at regular like obligatory prayers she can do whatever she likes well i think that's you know pretty good yeah i too would say regular prayers if they were like you can just live in this apartment (laughs) do whatever you want she essentially she devotes that free time to either studying or writing letters she writes extensively she's in correspondence with like every intelligent person in the city nice so does that mean we have like a decent number of her letters or are they all just gone we do have a bunch of her letters she often writes them in verse (laughs) yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. i do know people used to do that because i remember frederick the great wrote some of his letters in verse and some of his letters in the persona of his dog it's just kind yeah. of like, when you're writing a lot of letters, you got to make them fun somehow. <laughs> you got to, like, mix it up sometimes. Yeah, so no, she does write a lot of letters, and a lot of them are on, like, topics of, like, philosophical debate, like, scientific topics, things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And others of them are written in verse to friends. Um, so she wrote a lot of letters, and she accepted a lot of visitors. All right, yep. Sometimes she hosted little parties at her little house. Nice. Her friendship with Leonor Corretto continued. Leonor and her husband regularly attended the convent chapel for Vespers, which was like the pre-dinner prayer, yep. and then had dinner with Juana. Sounds nice. We don't have a lot of like concrete information about the nature of the friendship. We can glean something from poetry. Juana wrote a great deal of poetry to Leonor, whom she nicknamed Laura. For example, I'm just going to read you one example. During her first couple of years at the convent, She fell ill with typhoid, and when she was well again, she wrote this poem to Laura about how she did not die. (laughs) That's good. That's what we like to hear. We do like to hear it. It says, Divine Laura, my life was always yours, and always will be yours. Though death stalked me and longed to put her foot on me and crow, I applaud her audacity. She's lost an empire. Now her power's yours. Through you I'm free. I saw her fatal scissors ready to snip my thread. A death, I said. Look, Laura rules here. Death saw she'd lost me and fled from now on i die only for you <laughs> that was pretty intense it's like no 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 death quite... law is in charge of my life not you <laughs> get out <laughs> yes <laughs> i do want to be clear here that i'm reading the poem in translation but i did read two translations to like make sure that it was that intense consistent and this is this is the vibe so if it wasn't gay which like could have been gay we don't i don't know anything about her sexuality yet even so, either way, it was a very intense relationship. It is a yeah, it is a very intense friendship. In 1673, Leonor's husband stops being the viceroy of New Spain, and yeah. another dude is appointed. He's not important at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> I find it but, funny how we've had two men who are the viceroy of New Spain, which is basically the highest like position in yeah. this country right now. <laughs> Both times you've been like, this guy is not important. This guy is so much less important. I am going to tell you a fact about him because I found it funny. Okay. But he's not important. The new viceroy was appointed in a deeply questionable way. In order to top up the treasury in Spain, the prime minister had the cool idea of appointing the viceregency to the highest bidder. Oh, so literally just like sold off the viceregency. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He apparently consulted with theologians to like assuage him the the monarch's guilt. (laughs) Somehow divine right is still at play here. (laughs) 
<laughs> God gave <laughs> you all that money. What's that philosophy anyway. that ScoMo believes in? The gospel of prosperity? If you're rich, it's because God wanted you to be rich because God loves you best. <laughs> Jesus Christ, mate. <laughs> yep. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, so this guy got appointed by paying 50,000 ducats for it. I don't know how much that was, honestly. <laughs> More money than anyone else had, I guess. Yeah. He was came to Mexico City. He was instated as the Viceroy, and four days later he died. Oh, f- <laughs> <laughs> I did not see that coming. So in April of 1674, Leonor Carreto and her husband set off to return to Spain. Before they had even left Mexico, Leonor died unexpectedly Aww. on April the 2nd. I can read you a poem if you like in translation. Yeah. Juana wrote, On the death of the most excellent Senora, the Marquise of Mancera. Drunk with Laura's beauty, the sky stole her. Her light was never meant to blazon this wretched valley. We the living marveled at the perfect architecture of her body. Blind, ungrateful, we deserved to lose her. Oh. She rose in the east where red curtains rise as the star appears in rubies. She died where the ocean, flushed with desire, buries light in its deepest places. Her brief life completed the sky. Now she's left us in darkness. Hmm. So, again, what we can read from that is, at the very least, it was an intense friendship. Yeah, yeah. Like, they're definitely very close, even though we don't know much more about their relationship than that, necessarily. Yeah, they're definitely very close. And I do think it's worth noting that, like, she comments on her beauty, especially. Yeah, yeah. Like, I definitely don't think, I don't think there's proof that they're in a queer relationship, but I don't think it's unreasonable to think that might have happened. I like the imagery of how she, like, rose in the east and then set in the west because she came from Spain and then went back to Spain. Oh, that was good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, no, no, that's the thing. Like, she rose in the east, she rose in Spain, and then she went west to Mexico where she sat. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, wait, so she, she, did she die before she went back to Spain? She was meant to go back yeah, to Spain? Yeah, she, oh, she okay. was heading back and they hadn't, like, left yet oh, before okay. she died. That makes sense then. Yep, yep, yep. So, a new viceroy was appointed some guy he was pretty chill he was an archbishop and also the viceroy is that like super unusual because i know that obviously like church leaders did used to have much more political power than they do now it's like a bit odd like it was worth it's worth comment but Mm -hmm. it's not like super controversial okay he is overall considered to be a pretty good viceroy not much happens during his reign which is obviously the mark of a good leader (laughs) we don't know a lot about what sofana got up to over the next five years We can tell that she read a lot based Mm -hmm. on literary references in her later works. Oh, yeah. But only a handful of her, like, actual written works can definitively be dated to this period. In 1680, a new viceroy came and also his wife. Yep. At 31, she was much younger than her husband and exactly the age of Sohuana. I see. Her name is Maria Luisa Manrique. She's got, like, five other names, but... I understand that's how Spanish names are. That is how Spanish names are. Yep. And again, I don't really know a lot about her as a person. Her family was very wealthy. We hear she was very beautiful. That's really all I know about her as a person. Um, Compared to his predecessor, the new viceroy really struggled to keep... Mexico under control. Mm-hmm. His arrival was met with an indigenous insurrection that he failed to completely quash and continued to pop up for like the entire six years he was in office. Mm-hmm. The Spanish fleet of Mexico was attacked by pirates to whom he paid a ransom in order to make them leave. Yeah, yeah. So politically at this time, New Spain is becoming increasingly unstable. Mm-hmm. Um, for Sohuana, however, this is perhaps the richest period of her like creative and intellectual life. You might remember Father Nunez, who organized her dowry for the convent. Yeah. 
She fired him as her confessor because he didn't support her dedication to study. So you say she fired him as her confessor. My understanding of your confessor was it kind of just meant like that's your local priest who you go to for confession. Are you saying that he was like hired into that job or she just started going to a different priest? He wasn't like hired into that job, but it was considered to be like an ongoing personal relationship between the two of them. Okay, okay. And because, like, she lives in the city, it's not like she has only one priest to choose from. Okay, so I guess we can think of it as akin to our firing your therapist. firing your therapist. Yeah. Yeah, she's like, he doesn't support my life goals. He keeps telling me that I should stop bothering with worldly matters like learning about science and just pray more. Yeah, they don't sound well suited. Of this period in her life, a close friend of hers, Carlos de Siguenza y Gongora, known as the Da Vinci of Mexico, Mm -hmm. wrote about her in this period, there is no pen that can rise to the eminence that hers surpasses. The fame of Sor Inez de la Cruz will only end with the world. Nice. So is she, like, publishing writings at this time, or is she just, like, sending a lot of letters so a lot of people know about her, or, like, Um, what's she doing? She's sending a lot of letters so a lot of people know about her. She also writes manuscripts that get passed around without going through a publisher. Oh, yeah, okay. So that's not uncommon at the time. Like, people write manuscripts and other smart people read them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they just kind of get handed around in those social circles. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, she does publish some things. So she published a volume of poet. In general, you can imagine that, like, as a, as a writer, her fame is increasing. I'll also read you a description of the salons that she held at this time. Yeah. Happier than her readers were those of us who had the privilege of being her listeners, whether arguing the most difficult questions with scholastic rigour, advancing with greatest delicacy her comments on various sermons, or spontaneously composing verses in diverse languages and metres, she astounded us all, and won the acclamation of the most severe critic among the assembled courtiers. Nice, nice. I like how she's composing in multiple different languages. That's pretty cool. She does do that. I mean, she knows Latin, she knows Spanish. I think she did write a little in Noah's which is like an indigenous Mexican language. Oh, okay. That's interesting. During this period, she also wrote some dirty little ditties. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, they called it, like, scholarship calls them her five burlesque sonnets. Oh, yeah, that's a nice way of saying uh, dirty ditties. But if you look at them, I feel like dirty little ditties is accurate. This translation is by Jaime Manrique and Joan Larkin, who are respectively a gay man and a lesbian. Um, (laughs) So they're really leaning into the queer angle then. They're very leaning into the queer angle and they particularly talked about one that they were invested in kind of recapturing the fact that she was using like vernacular language. Oh yeah, yeah. I think that's often a problem in translations, especially of older stuff, where people are just like, oh, therefore formal, and they're kind of unwilling to use slang in translation that they think sounds too modern, even though it has the same feeling as whatever words they would have used then. Yeah, yeah. And secondly, they're very invested in kind of resexualizing a lot of things that she has written, that Sor Juana has written, that they felt had been desexualized. Oh, okay. In the case of the burlesque sonnets, less so because I think they're less avoidably, <laughs> less avoidably sexual. As in the burlesque sonnets have always been given sexual translations to some degree. Yeah. But you can see their point with some other poems. 
But yeah, with other poems, like, yeah, they've essentially just emphasized the queer angle in her poems to Leonore and that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Later on with the poems that we're going to discuss at the end, I did put some effort into giving you a mix of translators so that you can get a sort of broader sense of what her poetry was like. This is one of her dirty sonnets. <laughs> sonnets? Yes, in Spanish it rhymed. Nice. It does not rhyme in translation, but I recommend that you look at the Spanish, actually, because even if you don't speak Spanish, the rhyming looks quite clever. Oh, okay. That's cool. So, Inez, when someone tells you you're a bitch, (laughs) you've got a million comebacks. I'm supposed to think you're some old woman full of aches and creaks. That's your genius, dear. You cover your shit. (laughs) (laughs) So that's addressed to Inez. Is she Inez? Is that addressed to herself? She has used her name in this, but in a, there's more to this poem. That oh, was the first okay. verse. Um, cool. Um, okay, so let's let's read this. I'll read you the whole poem and then we can chat. Okay. Inez, when someone tells you you're a bitch, you've got a million comebacks. I'm supposed to think you're some old woman full of aches and creaks. That's your genius, dear. You cover your shit. You have a dirty mouth. You love to use it. Once you start, no magpie can compete. You're louder than a string of firecrackers. You thrive on noise. You love to make a stink. You crank out lies until a girl can't think. Your charms are much exaggerated. Still, Inez, the problem isn't you, you cruel pussy. The way I love you is a sin, I know it. But the way you fuck me is no trick. Your hard-on's real. I'm a field waiting to be ploughed. Wow. Is that it? (laughs) That's it. That's it. That was a a dirty ditty. Yeah. That's true. Yes. I want you to know that in the original, like the end of every line rhymes. I see. So who's Inez? Inez is nobody. Inez is, these are not addressed to anybody. They're the results of like poetry games that she had in her salons and that kind of thing. Like they would play games where you would give someone like a bunch of words to end their lines with. Oh, yeah. And they would have to make a poem. Do you know that Inez isn't anybody? Like, why do you say Inez isn't anybody? Because I'm just imagining, I'm just imagining that if you and your friends in a setting where you write that kind of poetry are in a salon, which is kind of like at a party, writing these kind of poems, I feel like Inez is going to be someone you all know. That's a reasonable point. Like, I feel like That's it's a much point. funnier that way. And this is clearly, like, it's meant to be funny. This is clearly, it's an address to a friend. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's true. In that case, I don't know who it's addressed to. Inez is a very common name. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it does make it hard to pick out the specific Inez in Mexico at that time. I don't know who it's addressed to. Um, she does mention Inez in another dirty poem. See, this makes me think that Inez was, like, her ex. Well, because she was so rude to her. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know whether Inez was her ex or Inez was just a friend and they had one of those relationships where you're mean to your friend. Yeah, but I really feel like it makes more sense if, like, there's some kind of personal history in the group she's writing for about who Inez is. (laughs) Imagine if we wrote, like, nasty, dirty poems about friends we'd broken up with. But I feel like that makes more sense. I mean, Inez could just be like a character that they invented to be the subject of this kind of poetry as well. Yeah, but like, yeah, yeah, and that's kind of the... But who knows? I don't know. Those dirty little ditties have been baffling scholars ever since, given that she was a woman and a Catholic nun. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, scholars. Women can be lesbians. Nuns can also be lesbians. Not all people keep their vows of chastity. <laughs> That's true. None of this should come as a shock. And even people 
people who do keep their mouths of chastity may still think about sex. That's true. That's true. So responses range from like trying to insist that she must have written these before she joined the convent, <laughs> even though all evidence points to them being written during this period. I would like to uh, put it on my bingo card, written from the perspective of a man. <laughs> I didn't actually see written from the perspective of a man. (laughs) Um, I saw Ludwig Fandel used them as evidence that Sorfwana was suffering from a mental illness. Yeah, she wrote wrote those. She wrote a lengthy poem called First Dream, Mm -hmm. which is essentially the topic of the poem is like a philosopher coming out of the darkness and learning about the world. Like leaving Plato's cave? Yeah, kind of like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, which I'm not going to read you because it really is long. Okay. But you're just showing us that she didn't just write dirty ditties. Yeah, I just want to be clear that she wrote many other things. The late 1680s saw significant changes for Sor Juana herself, but also for New Spain in general. Mm-hmm. Maria Luisa and her husband, the Viceroy, returned to Spain at the end of his term, which was six years, secretly agreed upon. Ah, yeah. Juana and Maria Luisa maintained their friendship through letters, and Maria Luisa was able to get some of Juana's poetry published in Madrid. Nice. Um, so she... She's very popular. She develops international fame. It's pretty wild that you can have international fame in the 1600s. Especially, like, across the ocean. Like, people had international Spain where, like, they'd been heard of in France and also in Germany. Yeah, yeah. But the idea that you can be known on multiple continents is pretty wild. Yeah. At the same time, the aforementioned civil unrest, along with a bunch of bad weather leading to bad harvests, Mm -hmm. and a solar eclipse, which just made everyone feel that maybe Mexico was cursed, led to a number of Spanish-born intellectuals in Mexico returning to Spain, Mm -hmm. and generally the power of the viceroy and the viceroy's court diminishing compared to the power of the church. Okay, yep. Which made Juana's situation somewhat precarious, so many of her greatest supporters had returned to Spain, which meant that the people who had kind of enabled her to resist pressure from the church to behave more appropriately as a nun Mm -hmm. were not close enough to offer the same support. Yeah, yeah. So in the past, the church had often been pressuring her not to do this, but they couldn't actually do anything because her connections in the court and her popularity were bringing income and favour into the convent. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so they were kind of like, can you stop, Sor Juana, but maybe don't stop giving <laughs> Stop, money. but keep making money off that somehow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Amongst her works in the late 1680s, was her only real published work of theology, which was a lengthy critical essay in response to a famous sermon by Antonio de Vieira, confessor to Queen Christina of Sweden, incidentally. Oh, hey. (laughs) (laughs) What was his name, sorry? Antonio de Vieira. I don't think I remember him from an episode on Christina. There you go. He was one of those Jesuits. Do you remember when you told us that Christina shipped a bunch of Catholics in? Yeah, they kept sneaking Jesuits into Sweden. Yeah, he was one of those Jesuits that Queen Christina stuck into Sweden. The sermon had been given some like 30 or 40 years ago, but it was very well known. And the topic was, of the sermon was, what was the like greatest, the kindest act of Christ to humanity? Oh yeah, Um, okay. Is it not that he died for our sins? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently this is a matter of discussion. (laughs) 
What are the options? You don't have to tell me theology if you don't want to. I'm just curious. I, tr- I tried not to go into too much detail, even though it was kind of, I was genuinely kind of interested in this. Um, yeah. But yeah, basically in the sermon, Vieira considers the views of a bunch of well-known theologians like Thomas Aquinas on the topic of what was the greatest favor that Christ bestowed upon us and then concluded that the kindest act of God was to love humanity without expecting that love to be reciprocated. Okay. Um, So I'm not going to go into a heap of detail here because this isn't a theology podcast (laughs) and they really like get into like the text. That's fair. That's fair. But so Juana disputed the idea that Christ had no expectation of reciprocation. Okay. There's a lot to unpack here. There's a lot to unpack there, but essentially she's saying, no, God expects us to do good and try and be godly. I think God does expect that of us. Not to make this a theology podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And she was like, and that's an expectation in return for God's love. I guess the thing is that God would love us even if we didn't do that. He'd just like it if we did that. I don't know. That was that was Sohana's point. Well, um, that's my theological perspective. <laughs> <laughs> and she contends instead that the greatest kindness of God is choosing not to grant us blessings and favors. Oh. Like that God's greatest kindness is kind of leaving us to our own devices. Um Okay. Okay. And she kind of argues essentially that were God to be dropping favors and blessings on us all the time. Inflation. <laughs> Not so much inflation as she was like, we would probably, we would not necessarily be grateful for the things we received that were actually good for us. I mean, so this would do us some kind of like theological and psychological harm. Theological and spiritual inflation. We'll no longer value the things if we have too many of them. Yeah. And so she thinks that God is showing us a great kindness, essentially by allowing us to live on our own terms. Okay. Okay. Which theologically was a big statement to make because it's so much emphasized humankind and free will and just like God not meddling kind of. Yeah. And it is a fairly strong position to take in a cultural context, which kind of believes that God will reward prayer or reward appropriately Christian acts. That mm-hmm. so Juana is here saying, no, God doesn't do that. And that's his greatest blessing. Yeah. Yep. Juana always maintained that she never intended to write this essay down. She'd been in a discussion with some friends who had thought the points she made interesting. And uh-huh. one of the friends, the Bishop of Puebla, Manuel Fernandez de Santa Cruz, asked her to put her argument in writing for him. So she did. And in the text, she mentions that she trusts the bishop will understand this text is for him only and that it's only a draft. In an embryonic state, she says, just as the bear gives birth to unformed cubs. (laughs) And then licks them into shape. (laughs) That is correct. (laughs) Isn't that what the, like, Um, Norse used to believe? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For some reason... Yeah. The bishop, without Sohuana's permission, published it. He gave it the title Carta Atenagorica, a letter worthy of Athena, is the way that's usually translated. It's pretty fancy. I guess he just thought she was being modest and he was like, no, this is worthwhile. The weird thing about this is that he published it with a foreword by a nun named Sor Philatea, who suggested that it was inappropriate for Sor Juana as a woman and a nun to spend so much time on worldly teachings and asking questions and, like, critiquing great church leaders and that she should spend more time in... Why would you include that as the foreword and then say it was worthy of Athena? I don't know. I don't really get what he's going for there. His behaviour was extremely baffling. It's possibly, like... 
My guess is maybe that he genuinely admired the text and was very impressed to it, but he felt the need to sort of bow to general social pressure that Sohana shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, that's what I was kind of thinking. Like, he has to say those things to save face and to kind of follow the, toe the party line of the church. Yeah. But then he does actually just want to publish this as well. Which is yeah. still obviously like, you know, it's not appropriate to publish someone's work without their permission. Like, obviously this isn't a correct no. thing to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, they had they had had a long friendship, and so people are quite confused about what he was doing here. Was she very angry? Yeah, she's extremely angry. Fair. Sophilatea was a sock puppet. <laughs> Just to be clear, there is no Sophilatea. It's the same pseudonym that several other, like historically, St. Francis de Sellers used to write to nuns in the past. So it's a sock puppet. Everyone knows it's a sock puppet. So Juana knows... It's kind of a recognised fake name. Yeah, that this is the bishop himself writing. Why he did this like this... I don't know. In Spain, Maria Luisa tried to kind of mitigate the damage done to Sor Juana's life and her reputation by having the original critique, so the Carta Atenagorica, published along with, like, supporting texts from well-known Spanish theologians. Okay. So it's not just that this is, you know, he's published it without her permission. This is actually quite a damaging document to have your name to. Yes, it's quite a damaging document to have your name to because she is a woman because she's questioning church authority. Like the, the original sermon is a very like well-known and well-regarded piece, piece of Catholic teaching. And it's kind of like, as a nun, your job is not to do that. As a nun, your job is to like study church teaching, but not to question it. Yeah. Yeah. So Maria Luisa is like, no, this is going to be fine. Look, I know some theologians. I'll get them to write little supporting chapters. We'll publish a book. It'll be great. Okay. That's some pretty good damage control. So she's doing her best there. Meanwhile, in Mexico, Juana spent the following three months writing a response to Sor Filatea, which is perhaps one of her most famous works. The result is a lengthy essay called Respuesta a Sor Filatea. Does that mean response to Sor Filatea? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, literally, Yes which was published in 1691, and it is the text from which those anecdotes I told you about her autobiography come. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. As well as that, it is a very well-structured defence of, one, her academic lifestyle, and in general, the rights of women to what's considered a masculine education. Mm -hmm. So would you say Um, this document is why you called her a proto-feminist in the introduction? Yeah. So she does a number of things in this piece of writing which are quite interesting. Yeah. Firstly, she gives us this picture of her character as a child, which is kind of designed to make you believe that her academic gifts are a God-given part of her character. Yeah. Not something she's chosen to do. It's something that she's just been like since birth. Because this is a queer podcast. I know we haven't discussed much queer stuff on this podcast, but it kind of makes me think of how there's that like born this way queer narrative where people really felt like they had to say, no, I was just born like this. I didn't make this decision to fight against people saying, why have you chosen this sinful lifestyle? I absolutely thought about that when I was taking these notes and I was kind of hoping you would bring it up because <laughs> yeah, that's definitely that's definitely a parallel that I noticed. Yeah, yeah. In the social context that she works in, Sofuana's studies do have a gendered element. Mm-hmm. In that even like critics who receive her work positively tend to say things like she, you know, she's concealing a virile aspect in a woman's body. Ah, oh, yeah. Yeah. So when, even when they try to compliment her, they compliment her being like, hey, she's like a man. Yeah. Or Sor Juana has no sex. She is an angel. <laughs> uh, is another one. <laughs> yep. 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 And then on the other hand, 
like criticisms of her tend to be that she's not behaving appropriately as a woman. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I do think it's interesting that you like to bring up that queer parallel that she's trying to demonstrate that this behavior is a natural behavior and not a betrayal of her sex. Yeah. She goes on to then list a bunch of like respected, educated women throughout Christian scripture and the history of the church in general. So people like Teresa of Avila, who we mentioned earlier. Yep. Um, and then like women in the Bible. Then her third point is she essentially argues it's essential that women become educated if only for the purpose of educating the next generation of women, because otherwise if a parent does choose to educate their daughter or a daughter wishes to become educated, Mm -hmm. her only option is to become close with a man who is not her relation. And that's obviously unseemly. (laughs) And that's obviously uncool and very uncatholic of her. That's an interesting argument. And I feel like that's just the other arguments are like general arguments, like, yep, there's historical precedent for this. This is just naturally how I am, which are like, you could use those arguments in any time and place. But that final argument is a very, like, it's really of its time and place. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. And I think it's very, I think it's very interesting when you read the whole Respuesta that you can see, you can see that she's really structured her arguments. And it's not like she's structured her arguments like, this is what my opinion, this is what I believe. Mm. She's structured arguments like, I know the way that you think and I've designed these arguments to counter that. Yeah, like these arguments are designed for conservative Catholic men. It's like, here's yeah. the biblical precedence, here's how this will protect the chastity of your daughters. Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So it really is, it's often described as a rhetorically brilliant document. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really think it is genuinely very clever. But I also do wonder without that context what Sofwana would have said about hmm. her reasons for studying and the, like why she values it. Like what her actual personal beliefs about that yeah. were. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And what her actual personal beliefs were about the value of women's education. Hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, the Respuesta was not well received by the church. Is that because they knew that it was right? Yes. And they're like, we don't know how to refute this, but we hate it. Yeah, that's exactly how it was. <laughs> They were like, damn, you've got us there. Um, This document is bad. Do that again. Um, So following pressure from the church, she signed a written confession of her sins and allowed her extensive library to be sold for charity. Oh, I'm sorry, Sohana. You didn't deserve that. No, she did not deserve that. That really sucks. She appears to spend the next few years devoted to helping the poor. Okay. Until in March of 1695, an epidemic of some kind breaks out in the convent. Oh. I don't know what the epidemic was. A number of scholars referred to it as the Black Death. Octavio tells me that we have no information regarding what type of disease it was, only that the death toll was very high. Okay. In any case, Sofwana contracted the illness while caring for her sisters, and on April 17th, 1695, she died. Mm-hmm. In the days after her death, the archbishop seized everything that was found in her cell. This included unfinished poetry, jewels, and sums of money, which some scholars suggest reasonably that this gives the impression that rather than renouncing her commitment to her studies, altogether as she claimed she was doing when she signed that confession she simply intended to wait a while and then when the controversy blew over start buying back her her library that makes sense that makes sense in any case the fact that there was still unfinished writing in her cell so she hasn't really renounced her studies yeah yeah 
Having reached the end of her life, mm-hmm. let's have a little chat about her queerness. Nice, nice. So Honda's romantic interest in women is essentially undeniable. It's really just kind of a question of extent, whether you're arguing that, oh, she admired some women from afar, or, oh, she had romantic relationships, or, oh, she snuck her into her cell and they had sex. <laughs> <laughs> okay, please um, tell me more. <laughs> Even Octavio Paz, who, as I said, was extremely invested in kind of rehabilitating Juana from what he perceived as bad Freudian speculation. With his Um, own speculation. When was he writing? The book was published in the 80s, but he spent like the previous 50 years writing it. Okay, okay. The closest he can come to denying Sor Juana's attraction to women is to pretend that everyone is attracted to the same gender. Of course Sor Juana was bisexual, he says, but what does that say? All but a handful of humanity is bisexual. (laughs) Then he tells us that it would be excessive to talk of homosexuality. (laughs) I love when people bring up that argument. Like, it's just the most, like, oblivious and, like, this is more about you than the person you're talking about argument. Like, yeah, of course you're attracted to them, but everyone's a little bit gay, right? That doesn't mean it's, like, gay. And it's like, no, that just means you're also a little bit gay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That isn't the, like, gotcha you think it is. What I really want to talk about is her love poetry. So is that, like, the main reason we know she's attracted to women? That's the main reason we know she's attracted to women, is these poems that she wrote, um, especially to Maria Luisa. Uh Uh-huh. And unfortunately, the nature of the situation is that we don't know what their interactions looked like. We only know what their letters looked like. We only know what, yeah, what these poems can tell us. Mm Mm-hmm. So what I will do is just read you a couple of poems Yeah. As I said, I've given you a mix of translators here. Where it was possible, I checked for more than one version of the same poem, Mm -hmm. just to make sure that what I was reading you wasn't, like, wildly out of sync with what the consensus was. Yeah. My favourite translation is Larkin and Manrique, Mm -hmm. just because I feel that their mission statement and ours align very well. (laughs) We want it to be vernacular, accessible, and queer. Yeah, exactly. But having said that, it is worth noting that they're considered to be a somewhat loose translation. I mean, that's kind of the toss-up every time you add a translation. Is like, is this like clunky but very accurate, or is this looser but actually sounds more like the way a person would write? Yeah. So let's read you an excerpt from a poem. Good. This was translated by Amanda Powell, and it goes like so. Like air drawn to what is hollow, like fire to feed on matter, like boulders tumbling to the earth, and intentions to their goal. Indeed, like every natural thing, all united by the desire to endure which ties them tight in bonds of closest love. But to what end do I go on? Just so, Phyllis, do I love you. And here she's using Phyllis as a nickname for Maria Luisa. Okay, yeah. With your considerable worth, this is merely an endearment. You're being a woman, you're being gone, cannot pose the slightest hindrance to my love, for you know that our souls have no gender and know no distance. Nice, nice. I was thinking as this started, you know how we were talking about with Leonor and like reading some of the things she wrote to Leonor and being like, I mean, they're obviously close, but how do we know this is queer? Or is this queer? And as you started reading this poem, I was like, okay, so it's a similar thing. Like, she's saying they're close. But then the fact that she specifically says, like, you're being a woman poses no obstacle. It's like, clearly she, like, it's queer. Clearly it's the kind of relationship she would be expected to have with a man if she's bringing up, like, you're being a woman is not an obstacle, where it should kind of theoretically be. I literally have notes in my document about talking points that I hope you will bring up, and you've nailed it every time. Nice, 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 nice. (laughs) Because, yeah, I think that that is what's 
kind of notable here and that's what makes the difference between this is an intimate friendship and this is something which transgresses what's an acceptable relationship yeah. for two women yeah because you don't say you're being a woman is no obstacle if you're being a woman is no obstacle yeah there's no reason that you're being a woman would be an obstacle you don't bring up the fact that it's not an obstacle <laughs> yeah exactly like no one's like yeah i'm getting brunch with my friend tomorrow her being a woman is not an obstacle <laughs> That would be a weird thing to say. <laughs> the final verse of that poem is like, look, I know you're a woman and you're in Spain now, but I'm still in love with you. <laughs> a good poem for queers in long distance relationships everywhere. The second poem that I wanted to read you is also to Maria Luisa. Yeah. This time she nicknames her Lisi. Lisi with a Y, L-Y-S-I. Oh, okay. Um, like Phyllis, but Lisi. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm not sure what the source is of these nicknames. Well, Phyllis has, like, I can't think of, like, the specific connotation, but Phyllis is a classical name. Yeah. 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 And Luana would absolutely know that because yeah. she's read every book. Yeah, like, that makes um, sense. And this one is, and I'm going to read you the whole poem this time. Okay. The other one was an excerpt from a longer poem, mm-hmm. but I feel I read you the key part. My divine Lissy. Forgive me for daring to call you mine when I'm not worthy to be called yours. I refuse to believe I've stepped out of line. If calling you mine offends you, strike me with lightning. (laughs) The tongue is mistaken to say, these goods belong to the lord of the manor. The serf is the real owner. (laughs) My king, says the subject. My cell, says the prisoner. It's no crime for the lowest slave to call his master his. When I say mine, I don't pretend anyone thinks I own you. Only that I'm hungry to be yours. I've seen you. That's all I'll say. To expose dangerous thoughts, all you have to do is point to what started the fire. (laughs) You may be on a pedestal, but you won't keep me from speaking. Even a goddess isn't safe from a mind that dares to soar. Some may be worthier than others, but low valley and exalted peak are the same distance from heaven. Yes, I confess to the crime of adoring you. Punish me if you like. Punishment from you would be a joy. So I know, that's a love poem. My favourite part of that poem was she's like, I've seen you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Like, I don't know what you want from me. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. All you have to do is point to what started the fire. She's just like, look at you. Look. What did you expect? (laughs) That was great. I loved that one. So I looked up several translations of this poem in order to confirm that it was really like that. Because saying something like punishment from you would be a joy. You didn't expect that in the 1600s? I just didn't expect to see kinky love poetry from a 17th century nun. (laughs) That's fair. That's what I've got for you. That was Sor Juana. You said we didn't have much biographical detail, but I feel like we learned a lot about Sor Juana and we also got like a very strong impression of Sor Juana. Yeah, I feel like I had a clear impression of her as a person. Yeah, like even if we don't know, you know, what year she was born or what she did in certain periods of her life. What I really felt I was lacking was that I had very little information about, like, how she interacted with friends and that kind of thing. Yeah, but I think, like, knowing, like, having that poem, like, that dirty poem she wrote and knowing that she had these kind of salon-type parties, like, you can kind of paint a picture of what her life would have been like. Mm, I think it's very funny because she often describes herself as, like, a solitary scholar. (laughs) It's like, don't lie, Juana. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I had this one quote from a priest that was like, she only stopped writing letters when someone came to visit her. (laughs) And then her own quote's like, I hate it when people visit me. (laughs) I'm just trying to study. (laughs) Well, this has been a good time. Uh, Thank you to everyone who requested her because we never would have known about her. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. If you liked this episode, 
You can find a lot more of those on whatever podcatcher you use. If you want to contact us, we can be found on social media, on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook as Queer as Fact, or you can email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. If you want to support us financially, you can sign up to our Patreon, or you can buy our merch through Redbubble. All of this information and links are on our website, which is queerasfact.com. Hopefully this episode sounds great and we can bring you more in spite of the lockdown. We'll be back on October 1st. So thank you for listening and we'll see you then.